3: Back to the 1930s, penned by songwriter Cole Porter, who predicted 80-something years ago that America would find herself in the trouble that she is in today. A post-modern, post-Christian, post-strict constitutional interpretation of America where everything is literally turned on its head upside down. Think about it. Love of country is bad, but uncontrolled open borders are good. Teaching moral values in public schools are bad, Providing abortions to underage teens without parental consent or knowledge with the help of a public school nurse is good. Strong-arming police, uh, I'm sorry, strong-arming storekeepers robbing stores of drug paraphernalia, defying police orders to stop jaywalking is good, but police doing their job to protect citizens and property is bad. Yeah, I think Cole Porter had it right. What's black is now white, what's up is down, what's good is bad. Upside Down is the title of a new book by our guest tonight, a look at how the left turned right into wrong, truth into lies, and good into bad. He is radio talk show host, Mark Davis. And Mark, great to have you on the program.
2: Craig, thank you so much, and great to be on in San Francisco.
3: Boy, I tell you, we're, we're even upside down here a lot, but we'll get to the uh, the Kaepernick uh, controversy coming up uh, a little bit later on in our conversation. I just want to first lead off with your, your observations in terms of, Mark, how we got here. I mean, you know, this was an America that was a loving America, that was a wholesome America. Sure, we were not without our faults, to be certain, but this was a nation that was willing to go to war to save all of most of the South Pacific and Asia, certainly save all of Europe from the tyranny of Nazism. Many people on planet Earth today would be speaking German or perhaps Japanese if it weren't for the efforts of America in the 1940s during World War II. We have been the nation that has repeatedly been turned to in times of crisis and emergencies, uh, whether you want to talk about us being the world 's uh, you know peacekeeper or police officer um, coming to the rescue of many nations repeatedly, even the nations that claim to hate us the most typically receive billions of dollars in aid from us every year, and yet the viewpoint of America externally is a bad one, and quite frankly, if you listen to a lot of the rhetoric coming from um, our friends on the Democrats side of the aisle, the viewpoint of America internally isn 't all that healthy either
2: completely true, and what has happened is in the past few decades the left has decided that part of its agenda i mean conservatives are always going to have their goals liberals are going to have their goals and and that's fine left versus right republican and democrat will always have that that's part of the sound of democracy part of the sound of free speech but some decades ago the left decided that they were going to try to use some interesting tactics to bring about their agenda They were going to attempt to do through the judiciary things that they knew they could not do legislatively because people did not want them. That's how they carved out abortion rights. And they've also decided that they were going to use a tactic in which they identified themselves as the only good people on Earth, that to oppose them on issues of race uh, meant you hated black people, to oppose them – on issues of uh, abortion or birth control meant that you hated women. To oppose them uh, by uh, seeking a smaller government uh, meant that you just pretty well hated old people and wanted everybody to starve. And sadly, it has worked. This is the current struggle of conservative politicians, isn't it, To, to step forward first thing and set your own show open, identifies you as a compassionate conservative, which is a good thing to be. But would we even have to say these things if there had not been a successful painting of conservatism as
3: uncompassionate. Well, and that's just the irony. I mean, we have seen this growing chasm in America, and as you point out aptly so, Mark, there's always been a difference in viewpoints and opinion in America, and for most of our history, that wasn't deemed a bad thing. That was actually a good thing. The give and take meant that we, we discussed issues, and we we arm-wrestled over uh, negotiating deals in Congress to come up with what would be the best legislation in the best interest of the American people. But now we've seen this growing growing schism in America, where it's no longer right and left, or even far right and far left, according to some of the articulation by Hillary Clinton in recent weeks, there's now an alt-right, which I, I suppose is is the opposite of, uh, you know, delete left, which is, <laughs> maybe she needs to learn a bit more about a computer in the process of sending yeah, all those emails out. Good, we want to alt-right, let's delete the left like and start things. all over again.
2: <laughs> You're right. Things have, things have slid off. The foundation. There's some debates: how high or low should taxes be? Which wars are worth fighting and which are not? You know, the, the, we're, we're going to have policy questions forever, and that's fine. But make a list of the things that are just crazy that we are even debating right now. That gender matters. Who, who would have thought that we would actually debate whether the, 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 the meaning of male and female would be something that would be under attack? Having borders in America that actually work, we're having a debate right now over whether we want that. And to, to bring it on home right there to San Francisco, I'm writing a piece right now. Can you imagine what Vince Lombardi or Tom Landry would have done to a football player choosing to sit down during the national anthem in, say, 1968 to protest the Vietnam War. But now now it's okay. Now we can't do anything about that. That's what I mean by upside down.
3: For the greatest degree of American history, Mark, fundamentally we, we agreed on what was deemed to be good and what was bad. I think about a nation, even my reference earlier to World War II, where prior to The bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 41. There was a good percentage of Americans that believed in America first. They've told the line that was being promoted by the likes of a a Charles Lindbergh that said, let's stay out of American involvement in overseas actions. We went to Europe once. That didn't turn out so well for us. We don't need to get involved in European politics and debates yet once again. We need to take care of America first. That largely was a, a pretty widely held opinion across America in the days leading up to December of 1941, even as we were watching literally London being set aflame by the Germans. And yet, once Pearl Harbor happened and Roosevelt went before Congress the next day and asked for that declaration of war, we understood we had to be in this thing to win it we also understood greatly what was at stake at multiple levels. So there was a long period of time in which Americans could fundamentally agree on what was good and what was bad. But today it seems, Mark, as if the lines are so horrifically blurred that we're, we're in this almost uh, morally neutral vacuum today. But I have to wonder if that's even true. Can you, can you have morals exist in a vacuum?
2: Well, it- have to have a foundation on which to rest. And the phenomenon that you've just described, uh, it it lasted for a little while after 9-11. Here here comes the 15th anniversary of 9-11 here in just a couple of weeks. And if my memory serves, uh, the rest of 2001 played out. But before too long into 2002, most people fell, on the left at least, fell to their natural corners. They hated Bush. They did not believe in America as a force for good around the world and so their attacks on him began. Uh, the war remained popular enough to get Bush reelected in 2004 and then became unpopular enough to get Obama elected, not just once, but twice. We are Gone is the idea of a unified America, able to stick together and say, look, we may disagree on a thousand things, but we are up against, we are in a battle of civilizations, there is a global jihad that would kill us where we all stand if we let them, and there is actual debate over whether we should fight them.
3: Mark Davis is with us today. Mark's new book is called Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies, and Good into Bad. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll struggle with the question, when exactly do we think that match was put to the powder keg?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
3: Welcome back to The Conversation. Best-selling author and radio talk show host Mark Davis is with us today. His latest book, Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies, and Good into Bad. Like many of these things, Mark, there's typically one or two events, perhaps, um, or, or, or something that gives genesis to The devolution of this, and I mean, we can certainly look to certain markers that occurred that ultimately ended or led to the collapse of the Soviet Empire, uh, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of what's happening to America today, is there any way to identify where the beginning of this slippery slope into the morass of, of, uh, what do we call it, Uh, morally neutral education, this vacuum that we've created that is causing this disintegration of American, not only exceptionalism, but, but our values?
2: I don't think it was anything you could point to as one year on the calendar or one place geographically or one movement. It was, when I say coordinated effort, I don't mean that there were meetings or anything, but just the the American left decided in disparate ways and by electing different types of people that we were going to begin to de-emphasize some things that had previously meant something, like strong borders, respect for the police, uh, a devotion to the Constitution. And we were going to put in their place uh, a different kind of worship, uh, a, a worship of uh, climate change alarm, uh, a worship of uh, equality of result instead of equality of opportunity. And w- those efforts have succeeded because we have not uh, adequately fought back. Uh, and, and that's what I, I was trying to do in the pages of Upside Down is give, I mean, a total through the book about 120 or so things that the left has said that people should respectfully, calmly, civilly say, can we talk about that for a couple of minutes? Because it's not true. We don't know that the, that humanity is warming the planet. We, it is not true that conservatives hate black people. It is important that we have strong borders, and, and we haven't had enough people willing to get into the fray and have those conversations.
3: Is a big part of the sort of the, the um, proverbial frog in the kettle um Slippery slope here. That, as you point out, not any single event or year in the calendar or uh, presidential administration has led to this, but slowly, and and um, maybe not a coordinated fashion as you indicate, but in a systematic fashion. I mean, I think, for example, of what's happened in in higher education, in universities and colleges, where today they are tax dollar subsidies of far left recruitment. Uh, quite frankly, that has had a major shift in not only the political agenda of our nation, witness what goes on in Congress, uh, but the dialogue on the streets. So a big part of this, I would imagine, is just slowly happened. And now suddenly we've woken up to the reality that this is the new America in which we live.
2: The frog in the boiling pot is a superb analogy. I was in college in the late 1970s and if you go back there and then maybe a little earlier back into college life in the vietnam era the complaint on college campuses was that not enough views were being heard there were students stepping onto campus and saying we want to be heard and the university won't let us now look at the way that's turned upside down if i may be permitted now there are views that seek to come onto campus conservative speakers conservative films and they are chased from a university environment because of trigger warnings, and they now seek things called safe spaces and speak of ridiculous things like microaggressions. And this is in higher education, which is supposed to be a, 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 an enormous proving ground and testing ground for all kinds of ideas. Well, that's one of the things that we have allowed to
3: happen. What's ironic in this dumbing down of America, as well, is is the fact that what we're willing to embrace as truth, without question, is I, I think absolutely remarkable. Some of the great thinkers of previous centuries would look at this and say, "Have you people completely lost?" your minds? I mean, let, let's look, for example, at all of the strides made by women in the last 100 years. I think of the suffrage movement and gaining the vote in America, gaining you know, e- equal opportunity, equal employment, uh, breaking through the glass ceiling, all of these important milestones within modern America that has helped allow for a greater sense of parity and advancement of women throughout our country and our society. And I think most of us would agree that, for the most part, that's actually benefited America. And yet, against this backdrop of all of these wonderful positive accomplishments that women have made over the last century, here we have the first presidential female candidate for a major party in American history— who has tightly aligned herself with an individual having served as her chief of staff when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, who embraces and yet promotes a religion that is quite frankly anti-feminist. It it is antithetical to everything that we know and recognize as human rights shown toward women, and yet nobody, Mark, stops and says, wait a minute, is there not a major contradiction here?
2: That a a twisted irony that the left is thoroughly insufficient in its um, response to jihad and and Islamic terror. And yet they will scold our country on issues of women's rights and gay rights and then turn their heads completely as some of these nations that they are looking to welcome countless unvetted refugees from. You, You can be killed for being gay. You can be beaten for for rising up to your husband. So, again, it is a selective attention that has turned logic on its ear.
3: What do we need to do to get this dialogue going, as you're suggesting inside the pages upside down, so that we can, uh, of the people that have an ear to hear... And I guess that has to be the qualifier here, because there's some people on the extreme left that don't want to be confused with the facts, so just leave them alone. But for everybody else, how do we get this dialogue started without being accused of being racist, anti-woman, anti-this, anti-that? I mean, you, you, you talk about this segment of, of America that claims to have a corner on tolerance and yet has demonstrated itself to be so horrifically intolerant. How do we engage?
2: Well, it it involves uh, – there's a saying I know you're certainly familiar with called speak truth with love. It it usually refers to uh, biblical behavior and how to communicate biblical truth. But I think it's also possible to do this on on more earthly political realms. Uh, Let's not just dismiss uh, the people who disagree with us at at work – in our families, the the Thanksgiving table or the the cubicle next door, uh, in the pages of Upside Down are sensible, civil tools that you can use when someone offers up something that you simply know to be wrong. Not just because you disagree with them. There's an old saying, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. Upside Down is a fact-based way to, to just sit someone down and say, look, can can you give me a couple of minutes, let's share beliefs, you back up what you believe, I'll back up what I believe, and maybe in those conversations, town by town, state by state, uh, year by year, that we can begin to swing the pendulum back towards some shared values. We're not going to get everybody to agree on everything. I don't want to do that. I mean, there's there's going to be differences of opinion. We're we're talk show hosts. We don't ever want everybody to agree on everything. But certain basic
3: things need to be rediscovered, and that's what I'm trying to do. Do we not maybe need to get this dialogue started in the home? And I ask that question, Mark, because I remember as a young man growing up when there would be dilemmas that I would face uh, when I had a, a, a ethical or moral dilemma in front of me. Um, my father was more apt to say, well, Craig, what do you think? And forced me to engage in open thought, to express my thoughts, to talk through that process in order to insist me in the process of coming to the right Conclusion. Part of this based on the knowledge that dad's not always going to be there, mom's not always going to be there to run to and say, hey, I have this moral dilemma, what do I do? You're not always going to have a book to turn to that tells you on page 12 what the decision ought to be. But if you're given the proper tools, you are raised with a fundamental moral foundation in what we used to call uh, almost euphemistically now the Judeo-Christian ethic and we understand from Scripture where the basic morality flows from, and then we equip our children with the tools how to think and how to reason, that that will go a long way toward making a difference here. Sadly, most households today don't want to answer the questions in public schools, uh, no longer teach our kids how to think, but rather they teach them what to think.
2: Exactly right, and that's why you've done me a great favor in making an observation that takes me right to one of my favorite pages of the book, The dedication page, because it's an entire book filled with problems that need solving and crazy things people say. On that dedication page, I decide to offer this book to the leaders, not just in government, but in churches, in communities, and in our families who have the power to solve every problem in the book.
3: We're going to take a time out. come back to more of our conversation. Best-selling author, radio talk show host Mark Davis is with us. If you listen on occasion to our sister station, AM 860, The Answer, you might hear Mark filling in from time to time for many of our nationally known and recognized syndicated talk show hosts. Mark is with us today to talk about his new book, Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies and Good. Into bad. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues right after this.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
3: Back to our conversation. Radio talk show host, best selling author Mark Davis with us today. A look at Upside Down How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies, and Good into Bad. You know, Mark, we're told in Scripture to be wise as a serpent and yet harmless as a dove. We also can extrapolate from Scripture that words matter and that actions also um, mean something. Um, and yet, just a recent example, we'll share a few here to kind of put perspective on this greater issue for listeners today. Um, the controversy right now with the uh, Santa Clara 49ers uh, quarterback, this whole debate over whether he should sit or stand for the national anthem, I, I get his point and his sense of frustration over what's happened in race relations in America today, particularly between the minority community and, and police, but this this sense that he's going to somehow fix the problem by sitting down during the National Anthem um, seems to be misdirected. What do you think?
2: Well, it it is misdirected both in tactic and in content. Uh, There are all kinds of gestures that one can engage in in order to draw attention to something uh, in a way that will not solve the problem but simply make clear one's distaste. In in, in giving Colin Kaepernick a, a, a thorough piece of my mind over the last couple of days, I've been asked often about the two uh, sprinters, uh, the African American uh, uh, sprinters in the Mexico City Olympics in 1968, who raised their fists in a black power salute and were promptly ejected from the Olympics. That, too, uh, was a, a bit of an etiquette violation. But, you know, in 1968, Dr. King had been killed just six months earlier. It's not as though uh, widespread recognition of racial equality had kicked in everywhere. And say what you will about their tactic, you could argue that maybe they had at least a basis for their frustrations. Colin Kaepernick chose to insult the America of 2016, where we've elected a black president twice we have African-Americans in every hallway of power, in and in a country that is where being called a racist is the worst thing that can be said about you. It is completely baseless. It is so incredibly insulting, and that's why we cannot just let things like this go.
3: And I find it interesting. I mean, one thing to say during a press conference, uh, express your frustration. Um, But beyond that, to be engaged in not just expressing frustration, but to become part of the solution. This young man makes $19 million a year. And I have to wonder out loud how much of that, if any, goes towards helping to create solutions to this problem.
2: Well, indeed so. And and, and listen, I, I don't want to disenfranchise him because he's rich. Uh, wealthy people can have gripes too and express them publicly. But it, you brought up an interesting point. The people, the people who are famous, the rock stars, the athletes, the actors, I think have a special responsibility to kind of check themselves uh, and say, "Look, is what I'm about to do does it honor?" Is it a good use of, of of the fame that I have? Am I about to put myself out on the line in a way that, that, that makes me a, a proud American, a good man, a good woman? If the answer to that is no, if it's just some kind of, you know, twisted-off tantrum, then maybe that's something you go home and do on your own Facebook page.
3: Well, moreover, you know, standing in respect for the American flag doesn't just count for the America today, but it also counts for the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have given their lives in the line of duty for this country on behalf of Americans. I, I find it the interesting irony uh, that the, the very people who died for that flag, that gives him the right to even sit down and, and make this statement— uh, their their memory, I believe, is being dishonored in this kind of behavior. Again, not to suggest that he doesn't have a right to freedom of speech, but there's a place and a time, and I don't know that he's necessarily contributing toward being an effective part of the solution here.
2: Well, indeed so, because, uh, as I've said during the last couple of days of shows, that, that if it, Colin Kaepernick or anyone seeking to come forward and say what we need is a dialogue of sensible, rational people based on facts and evidence to examine racial disparity in our justice system. Because you know what? We will find some. We absolutely will. We will find the occasional bad cop. We will find the occasional unjustified shooting. And when we do, our nation truly stands united in 2016, not to sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist, but to find it and punish it. And leading that interest are, are our nation's police department's themselves so that that's what makes that's what compounds the tragedy of a hate movement like black lives matter is it's just so totally confoundingly needless
3: there's another major point of debate that's uh, much to do has been made about uh, in this political campaign as well and that is the whole notion of whether or not America is a sovereign nation whether or not we have a right to protect our borders or to leave open borders to all from anywhere at any time? Where does this notion that anyone who suggests that there be any controls on the border is somehow racist? Where does this notion find its genesis, well, it, Mark? That,
2: that's the movement that I described, where everybody wants to be nice. Uh, millions of, of people have succeeded in convincing Americans. It doesn't even take millions of people. The media culture has done it. We need to fight back against that uh, in suggesting that if you're serious about borders, it must mean that you, you hate uh, Hispanics. If you oppose uh, waves upon waves of unvetted Middle Eastern refugees, that must mean that you're an Islamophobe. And this is what's interesting about Mr. Trump. I mean, I was a Ted Cruz guy, but I pivoted immediately as soon as it was clear that only Mr. Trump can prevent a Hillary presidency. And in his mixed bag of of offerings, maybe a candidate who will actually do the kinds of things we all should be doing, pushing back against that nonsense.
3: And, of course, in addition to that big bit of controversy, there's another arena that I find most troubling. Uh, We've had most of this genesis beginning here in California, and then it's beginning like a wave across the country. Most notably, with an executive order that essentially, I think, is a a, a problem in search of a solution, and or a solution in search of a problem, rather. And that is this idea that somehow uh, there are no gender differences. Isn't it interesting that for years we fought to bring about things like uh, equal pay for both genders, equal vote for both genders, equal access for both genders, inclusion? But now all of a sudden, we're being told none of that matters anymore. That in fact, gender differences don't exist.
2: So we're, we're all just human beings, and the differences made by God for the purpose of the furtherance of the species are now things that are to be overlooked. And in fact, if you have a nine-year-old boy who says today, Mama, I think I'm a girl, there is a movement afoot that says not, not only can you not Take him to, to deep Christian counseling, which is exactly what you should do, because there is no such thing as a transgender nine-year-old. But it says that to do so is, in fact, child abuse, and you should just let the child's transgender flag fly and, as, as if that and not the opposite is human nature.
3: And sadly, you add to that list, and you talk about this in the book. This notion that if you stick up for babies in the womb, you hate women. If you align yourself with a virulent anti-women religion like Wahhabism, Islam, you're, you know, a feminist hero. I mean, the these dichotomies here that defy the imagination, but I think also suggest that we we're no longer a thinking people, and we become a people that went from being a nation that was here. With the sole expressed purpose of being able to find religious freedom that we might worship God in the fashion in which he wants us to. And instead, we've come to become a people that want to stick their thumb in God's eye.
2: Indeed so. And there is nothing in the pages of Upside Down that suggests we all have to be of the same faith or everybody has to agree with me or we all have to be conservative. Not at all. But let our battles be over the things that are properly battled over and not over the basics that make any society healthy, like recognizing the roles that God created in man and woman, recognizing that you don't have a country if you don't have borders, and recognizing that when you have a jihadist enemy that wants to kill you, you have to fight that enemy.
3: These are not just political opinions that you're expressing here. At the core, there, there's real life and death hanging in the balance here, is there not, Mark? And by that, well, I mean if that if we continue down this road without taking some serious corrective action and finding the common ground that we once had, can you see the fate of America being a very healthy one?
2: I do. I, if, if I were not optimistic, I'm optimistic because my faith guides me toward optimism. And also, I, I just can't help but think that you know, if this election, a couple more elections, that the pendulum can swing back. On the very contentious issue of abortion, for example, we simply are not as cavalier as a nation. We are not as, as lackadaisical about the, uh, the rights of the unborn as we were when Roe v. Wade passed in 1973. And if we can swing the pendulum on that, then maybe anything's possible.
3: The book is a solid look at a lot of not only what confuses America but what divides America. How there has been as we've suggested in our conversation with Mark Davis today, this um, uh, frog in the kettle effect that we've suddenly find ourselves over the course of a number of generations probably dating back to the 1950s or 1960s maybe more accurately, a loss of a sense not only of our innocence in America but the loss of our sense of common ground, common understanding, common values. No people, as we've seen demonstrated by past no longer existing great societies, can survive without finding some kind of common value, common ground, common good. That is the condition in which we find our nation today, and we've got to get back to some of those roots. As Mark Davis points out, it's not as if there is a single political persuasion or viewpoint that exists and you must comply with that and no other? No, there is room for differences of opinion, but at the end of the day, if America cannot get back to its goodness, as de Tocqueville spoke of, uh, in our churches and in our sense of of common ground, embracing a common Judeo-Christian ethic uh, upon which this nation was founded and survived and thrived for so many years, then sadly our future may not be a bright one. But there are many indicators, as Mark Davison points to, that suggest that there is hope. But to to rise to that level of hope, we need to be active, we need to be prayerful, and we need to be engaged. The book, again, called Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lives, and Good into Bad. The new book, published by Regnery Press, media partner of the same fine folks who own this radio station. Our thanks to Mark Davis for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
3: All of us from time to time have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, We are told in John 10 and 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for all of us that say, gee, I, I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of another of other best-selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson. Great to have you on the program.
1: Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for, welcome, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would
3: honored. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly. Aha! There is the voice of God instructing me and in making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that He can speak to us through His Word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still small voice directly and for ourselves that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that?
1: I think it is elusive, and I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know uh, St. Francis of Assisi, or Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa, and I think it's a false expectation because I think Scripture's very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith, and, and, their, and their foibles. I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he he speaks to us because of his greatness.
3: All right, so toward that end then, um, it, it, part of it then has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not?
1: It absolutely does. And, you know, the Scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, He is the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master, we 're the subjects, he is the king, but it also says we are the children, he is the father. you know it breathtakingly intimately he says, we are the spouse, and he is the bridegroom, but every one of these metaphors is a human relationship, and you know Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your uh, of your family, of your spouse, of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication, and it 's two way communication and I think when we read scripture, scripture overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize his voice. It's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with him.
3: All right, now let's talk about that because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody I think with with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take, and that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with uh, with your siblings or get along with your uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it, it it it's kind of a curiosity in that. Uh, so often when we we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of, of God hearing from us, and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God. That seems to be elusive, because it requires upon us as well to be listening, as well as talking.
1: Absolutely, Craig, absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life. Like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host, you know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents, but, le, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents. Uh, you know, if you can think back over your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you or was it times when they just talked to you?
3: Oh, I think that's very clear. I mean, all of us remembering our our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, And yet, as as profound as those moments (laughs) might have been, uh, my my dad, who who went to be with the Lord, I still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause. And there's that sense of of, uh, that gap, because while we talked throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine. And, and I, I cherish those moments, probably more so than the lectures. <laughs>
1: of course, absolutely. And mine's the same way. My dad and I, you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but I mean, I, for, for for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship. And, and that's what I remember. And even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to italy a few years ago but really the the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together and it's not even you know earth-shattering discussions it's just normal discussions and i believe this is what god wants for his people in fact how are we going to recognize god's voice in 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 the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a you know, a, an evening breeze. Mm. We, we really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation if we're going to learn to recognize His voice in those very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision.
3: There is a reason why, and, and God certainly, in His infinite power, could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens as we all uh, sort of think of, you know, via our experience in the movies. And yet, God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I'm going to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today, the book Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice, everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order it directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.